Let me begin. We're in Ruth chapter 3. You may want to have your Bibles open with you. Uh, almost all the texts will come up on the screen there. And I'll say that confidently in my very able assistant, Ricky Eldridge, who's looking so lovely there. Thank you, Ricky. So, look, marriage proposals. They come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, whether traditional getting down on your knee, uh, or jumping out of a plane, or having a flyby, or scuba diving and, and writing, will you marry me? I mean, one of the number ones uh, I read about was a was of a physics student who, rather than go big, decided to go small, and he inscribed in, in, in absolutely tiny writing, "Will you marry me?" onto a what is the thing that you put on in the microscope? The slide. Yeah, the slide. Or shall I know about anything? Okay. And, and so then when, when it's her turn to use the microscope and look down it, there he was in miniature. Well, that's a small thing. Will you marry me? So microscopes come in all different shapes and sizes. But I guess none are more bizarre than what we're going to see today. This is Ruth's proposal to Boaz, and it's completely out of the ordinary. And in fact, you wouldn't even be able to tell, through a layman's set of eyes, you wouldn't even be able to tell that a proposal was going on. I don't suggest very strongly it is, and we'll see that later. And it's shrouded in culture and, and antiquity, but nevertheless, here is a proposal from a, a dear woman towards a man put his hand in marriage, if you like. And that's what we're looking at together. Our heading is, a lovingly concerned mother-in-law. Sounds like an intervening mother-in-law, mother-in-law, doesn't it? <laughs> but no, seriously, this is a lovingly concerned mother-in-law. So let me take you through these verses. We're going to cover at least the first five verses this morning. One day. So chapter 3 begins, one day. It's a time marker, isn't it? And it's telling us that it's a different day. In fact, it's at least seven weeks on since Ruth and Naomi returned from Moab and began this cleaning that they were doing. But told me, verse 2, tonight it will be Boaz, that is, winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So here's how we know it's seven weeks. It's, it's threshing time or harvest time. Can you remember when Naomi and Ruth returned to the land? It was at harvest. It was at the very beginning of harvest. This is what we're told in 122. Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth as the barley harvest was beginning. Now we're told in verse 23 that she gleaned until, can you see there? Until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. So that gives you your seven weeks. So there's at least seven weeks, perhaps a little more, but we're looking at a period of at least seven weeks here. You may remember we said that because of Boaz's generosity, that there was enough grain. She was accumulating at the rate of knots. And in seven weeks, it's worked out by commentators and mathematicians that she would have acquired possibly enough grain to last her the entire year. So they're at this supply. So you think, in one sense, there's no concern about the future. I mean, Boaz is just going to keep supplying. Except we don't know that. I think that's the issue here. And this is Naomi's issue. Look, verse 1. Naomi and mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, 
Should I not try and find a home for you where you will be well provided for? The issue here is they can't be sure that the kindness is going to continue. There's no guarantee Boaz will keep doing this. There's no guarantee Boaz will be well enough. And there's more than that. Naomi's getting old. And it's one thing for Ruth to to fend for herself like this, gleaning when the mother was around, so to watch out for her. But she's a vulnerable young lady. She's a foreigner. She's a lady. She doesn't have a lot for her. And it wouldn't be very hard for someone to take advantage of her. And so now he's naturally concerned. This isn't a long-term solution. Gleaning isn't a career choice. I mean, it's not something you, you plan to do, that you, that, that you, that you work a school towards. It's, it's, a, it's not a career in that sense. And so now he's concerned about it. Here's what one commentator writes. Besides seeing Ruth happily settled, Naomi probably also wanted to provide for Ruth's uncertain fate after her death. It would be one thing for Ruth to endure widowhood in a strange land during Naomi's lifetime, but quite another to do so when she was gone. And you can see the issue, can't you? Naomi is naturally concerned. And you may just be thinking, what does Ruth just sort herself out? It's a different culture. And a widow like this had very little means, an unknown foreign widow, to sort herself out. You know, you didn't go to college, you didn't go get a job. Her responsibility, the responsibility for, for Ruth's welfare, lay with Naomi. Can you remember what Naomi initially did for Ruth's welfare? What did she initially do for Ruth's welfare? Back in Moab, she... Uh, even before that, she did a thank you meeting. Even before that, what was the first thing? Maybe a trick question. What was the first thing that Naomi did for the welfare of Ruth? She gave her her son. But that's all failed, isn't it? It's all gone to pots. And so there's this responsibility that she feels. And so now she's thinking beyond now. I mean, there's one thing about life. And when you get to nearly 47, you realise you need to do is you know plan things a bit better and think ahead. I'm not 16, but I was thinking ahead. I'm 16. I wanted to fly jets, but you know what it's not enough when you're a teenager. You know you, you're not thinking ahead. And so, so Naomi's thinking for Ruth, and here's what she says: Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you've been with, and it's a key bit that we've been waiting to get to. This is this is. The key part of the text. Isn't this Boaz a kinsman of ours? It's an important term. It sounds a weird term, doesn't it? A kinsman of ours. Now, if you put kings or kinsmen of ours there alongside what she said earlier in chapter 2, in chapter 2, 20 there, she refers to him as in, in the more fuller sense, kinsman redeemer. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And look, it doesn't mean a lot to us, but it does mean a lot. Let me show you what's packing. It's one of those terms that you refer to as pregnant, because there's a lot going on. Here's what that term entails. We're going to have it on the screen for you. I'll read through them very quickly. Here's what it entails. There's several, several things that are associated with it. Number one, it's to the person who's a kinsman redeemer is to redeem, reclaim through monetary payment, property once owned 
fighting Joffrey's clan relative for Saul because of economic disaster. I won't go into them all. Number two, to redeem improvised clan relatives who were forced to sell themselves into servitude to a resident alien or another Israelite. Thirdly, he was to act as the blood redeemer to avenge the killing of a clan relative. So this could be quite violent, this responsibility, okay? Restoring a clan wholeness. To act as a recipient of money, pay as restitution for wrong committed against a clan relative, now deceased, hence restoring clan wholeness. To assist a clan relative in a lawsuit, so that justice is done. Can you see the responsibility tied to this person who's a kinsman's redeemer? But the one that we're interested in, the one that Naomi is interested in, is this last one. It's to redeem the wife of the deceased, i.e. acquire legal right, in order to raise up the name of the deceased upon his property. How do you raise up the name of the deceased by marrying this person? You, by, by marrying her and having children who don't belong to the person who's just married. If Boaz marries Ruth and has children, they're not his. He doesn't, his children, they're not his children to get any inheritance. The inheritance goes to the child who carries the family name of Ruth through to Naomi and ultimately to Elimelech. Elimelech's family is the beneficiary of any offspring that Boaz may have if he marries this woman. So that's what's going on. It's a costly thing we look at later because of that reason. And so in Naomi's mind is this idea that Boaz is the one person in our clan who has some sort of religious obligation before God to take care of you. Not just to provide for you, much more than that. He's under some obligation to marry you. Should he wish or should he be willing to do so? So obviously Boaz hasn't taken the initiative. I mean, what would you think Boaz hasn't taken the initiative? It's been at least seven weeks. I'm not asking long for getting to know somebody and propose and get married. But in that culture, how long would it generally take? Oh, no, it's the whole proposal thing. Maybe more short term thing is one because how many times would you meet your prospective husband? You may not even meet him. Seriously. You may not get done. You're behind closed doors. If you're fortunate, you may get to see them once. But the whole thing will be done outside of yourself. And so, that's the situation here. Boaz hasn't taken initiative. He's obviously the leading member of his clan. No one is arranging his marriage for him. So we have to expect he's a senior member of his family. Perhaps there's no father or mother involved here. So he ought to have taken responsibility, but he hasn't. Why hasn't he? Is it because... What do you think? Why wouldn't Boaz be interested in them and Ruth? Pardon? Other wives. Other wives? He may have a wife. Thank you, Graham. He may well have a wife. Uh, that's a real plausible one. We're not familiar. We're not sure that, that is the case. No one ever appears, but that could have been one. Why else might not he want Ruth? Maybe he doesn't want to force it upon her. Yeah, he doesn't want to force her. Look, she's a foreigner too. Like from his own perspective, she's a foreigner. Look, you know, foreigners don't get done so well. You know, uh, in that culture at least, she's poor. Okay, uh, and you know she's already been married. 
These are all things that they may have been putting her off. And so for whatever reason, Boaz hasn't moved towards it. And yet, it's none of the above. It's none of the above. If they're all the reasons, naturally, you think someone wouldn't want to marry Ruth. But none of the above, because Ruth is, it seems, very eligible. Listen to this. I told in verse 10, that the Lord bless you, my daughter, replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. All my fellow countrymen or townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. Boaz isn't looking upon Ruth as something to avoid. How is he looking? What does he say about her? He's got a glimpse in his heart, hasn't he? Towards Ruth. He's looking at her as somebody very desirable. Someone that you naturally would want to be with. In fact, he suggests that every guy in town who's in his right frame of mind would want to marry Ruth. This is a unique and incredible girl who's made an incredible impression on the community. So why does he want to marry her? It's part of that. I think this is a real form of humility. Remember, how was he referring to her? How would he refer to, to Ruth? When he spoke to Ruth, he used a term of endearment, we said. Daughter. Now, look, I wouldn't go to young Bron, she's very young, <laughs> okay, and refer to her as daughter. Come on over here. It just doesn't work that way, does it? I was going to say, maybe it would be the other way, but I'm so old now, it wouldn't even work the other way, would it? <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, uh, George, you, uh, you don't want to call me daughter, would you? Uh, but son, George might call me son, why don't you, George? I mean, there's, there's, there's enough age between us. Uh, and, and for Boaz to refer to Ruth as daughter, he's telling you what? There's a lot of age here. There's, there's, there's a lot of difference here. You know, maybe easily 30 years. You know, you know, to refer to him and to look upon her as a young daughter. So one of the one of the things that Boaz is no doubt thinking, she's not going to marry me. I'm old enough to be her dad. You know, this is a typical. He uses this term in, in his horrible term. I shouldn't say it's not mine. Cradle stretcher. Do you, do you know that term? Horrible, isn't it? Okay, you know, you know, dangerous and okay, really. But you know, this, this, you know, he may think Ruth wouldn't want him. Not only that, you know, he's not the wealth. Look at this. Moreover, he understands that his wealth won't work because he says this: "You have not run after the young men, whether rich or poor." Boaz realizes that this woman can't be bought with money. He's old. Every guy in town wants to marry her. And so it seems that he's somewhat reticent, nervous, unsure of himself. Realizing she's desirable, realizing he has a responsibility towards her, but not quite prepared to bring himself around to asking her into his home, into his life. And so Naomi steps up to the mark. She's going to take the initiative here. She cares for Ruth and she knows that this is going to be, if you like, a marriage made 
in hand. And so Naomi begins this process where she's going to put Ruth in, in, in Boaz's sphere, if you like, but there's risk associated with that. There isn't danger. If she sends Ruth after Boaz, I mean, there isn't any, maybe a slim chance he could reject her, he could misread it. And remember, they've got a good thing going on here, haven't they? They've been provided for amply. What if he doesn't take to this? What if he abuses her? So there is risk associated with it, but nevertheless, Naomi seems is sure enough to put Ruth out there and here's what she does. So here's the proposal. As I said earlier, it's bizarre, but it's real. Here's what goes on, verse 2. Tonight, he, Boaz, will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So it's, it's, it's the threshing season, the barley has come in. I don't know if you understand much about how farming works. You may not even be interested, but let me tell you anyway, because it's in my notes. Okay, look, this is what you want. Uh, if I can have the, the picture, please. Uh, Ricky. Uh, and I think the next one, too. Uh, I may have been jumping all over the place. Well, there we go, look. Bread. I doesn't look much like bread. Nothing like bread this morning. Okay, well, that's bread. And that's what it's all about. I know we don't take bread for granted because we live off Mars bars and McDonald's and kebabs and fish and chips. That was my diet for this week. No, it wasn't really. Apart from the fish and chips. Uh, and the McDonald's and the kebab. That's where you lived off, right? That was your staple. That didn't mean you started with that and you went onto a big map and, 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 and an apple pie. You kind of lived off that. That's where you grew grain. But to get to that was an obvious process. Let me show you. This is already involved. You get the hardest thing. That was a difficult task. I've tried that. Boy, it's hard, especially when you're not so strong like me. Okay, that's hard. Beyond that, next one, please. You had to get the grain off the stalks. And in that primitive environment, you did the easiest thing to do. You grabbed the bunch and you whacked it against the stone. Simple, isn't it? I mean, who would have thought of that? <laughs> I mean, it's that easy. I mean, that was one way, labor intensive. You can imagine that was a little heavy. Now, there was an easy way. If somebody came up with a bright idea, why do all the hard work when you've got cows or bulls? And so the alternative way is that you lay out in a circular pattern on your front lawn, on your front yard. Again, I've done some of this myself when I was a wee lad. Okay? And then you've got your bull, your oxen, and you made them walk around for hours and then really tedious times going round and around and around. And I used to watch this. Well, I went, when I went back over when I was 18 to where I was born, and I watched this, and I was just thinking, is he doing anything? But after the whole day, when the, when the cows and the oxen are gone, and you pick up the stalks, what's left? It's amazing, all the green. And not only is it left, it begins to flake off. You know, it'll either completely break off, or worst case, you take it to a mill. But then when you bring it back, you've got an issue. What's your next issue? You've separated it. What's your next issue? It, it's broken away the husks from the, the grain. What's your issue? Yeah, you, you saw stuff together. All the rubbish, all the chat. So there's several ways. One of the ways you did it was you got a fork. It's, and it's, in, it's in New Testament language. It's a winnowing fork. Jesus is spoken about Jesus. And you throw it up in the air and you need what? You need wind and he blows away the, the chaff and you're left with the grain and you finally get something like that. I don't know if that's been done. And at the end of the day, you take that and you make drinking water. 
bread. How much of your life, ladies or gentlemen, how much of your life do you spend preparing for the And we long, don't we? You know, it's such a such an obvious trip to drive all the McDonald's. You think I've worked on the bunch? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on commission, okay? A burger. Okay, for every time I mention their name on air. Okay. How much time, you know, even if we spend an hour in the kitchen, and even a lot of life was spent preparing for it's what you did. You really didn't live to put a meal on the table. It's that important. And so that's what's going on there. I just tell you that's a way of background to, to condition in that time. It's the evening when the, the, the threshing will go on, where you'll separate the host, the winnowing rather, the host from the grain. And it's at that time that we know that, that Boaz will be around because he's one of these conscientious employers. He's around with his people. Look, tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. He says something about him, doesn't he? If you're a company manager of a very successful building and you're there on, on, on the ground floor, shop floor, working away, he says something about you, doesn't he? She knows he'll be there. And so that's where Ruth is to go. She's told, wash and perfume yourself. Put on your best clothes. Something we do every day, I did this morning. It might, and this may look awful, but it's my best shirt, it's okay. Okay, I might not smell great, but it's all I could afford. Look, it's not all what's going on in your room. I, I can tell you, having been born in a third world country, you don't have a best set of clothes. Ruth most probably doesn't have her best clothes. And, so, and people commentators say the best is not in the original text of the Hebrew language. She's really been asked to change her clothes. And what's very probably going on here is that Ruth is a widow. Okay? If you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, if you're a widow, it's very obvious to everybody. How is it very obvious? To everybody, you're a widow, you're off the market, you're in mourning, and it's going to go for years. Uh, how does everybody know? How is that signal in the Middle East even today? Buy your attire. Whether it's black or in some parts, other parts is white. Okay, whatever color it is, your attire tells people you're a widow, you're in mourning, and there's no marriage proposals to come your way. And so what's really going on here, when Ruth washes at Naomi's instruction and told her to dress, not in her best, but just to dress, she's most probably telling her now to put aside her garments of mourning and to put on garments that will reveal, that are going to speak volumes. Ruth's not going to do a lot of, a lot of talking in this proposal. Okay, this is going to be uh, visual language. What she wears is going to say something to the next guy who sees Ruth. The perfume, again, you know, I can pick up some links from, I think it's a Tesco. You know, you don't have Tesco here, do you? We don't have Tesco here. Um, um, what are the little Coles? Or what's that chemist called? Discount warehouse. Okay. You can just pop into a chemist. In fact, perfume wasn't accessible to Joe and the only reason we can assume that there's perfume in this family, they certainly wouldn't have had perfume on hand at all, they would have sold it, this must be a family heirloom. 
you know, the type and Mary, remember Mary called on Jesus? You know, her whole knees were for alabaster. Okay, this is obviously a family heirloom that they kept back. And so for him to break into this was unique. And so here's Ruth taking the family heirloom, changing her attire, and we're told, this is what she says, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. You're stupid like me. You know, you come into a situation and you're in there like the boiling time is stuff on you. You've got no patience, no, you know, you know, pre-hand thoughts or organization, and you're in there, you're dealing in that thought. This is a very risky environment. What she's doing, we said, entails risk. If Ruth gets this wrong, it's going to jeopardize it. If Boaz misreads this, if one of the guys misreads this, look, you're a bunch of guys drinking away and harvesting, and a woman comes onto the scene. Look, look, guys, you know, you're going to build this life. What's it like when a woman walks by? Okay? This is a precarious scenario. Naomi insists, Ruth, you've got to get right. You've got to time this well. You've got to bide your time. It tells you something about God's purposes for our lives. And you know what God does something for your life, the plan, perhaps for your future? It doesn't mean you leave your brain outside the door when you live your life. And I think that's what's being said here. That although this is within the circumference of God's will, it doesn't mean that, 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 that Ruth just goes in there like a bullet in China shop and this is going to just work out. It's God's will for me and it just happened. No, she, she needs to be organized, deliberate, purposeful, okay, strategic, patient. And she's to wait until the opportune time. And only then is she to let her guard down and expose herself and pull this out. First of all, when he lies down there, know the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And there you have it. Who missed it? There you have it. The marriage proposal. Who missed it? There you have it. Were you paying attention? Were you listening? There you have it. Where is it? It's, it's, it's ever so subtle. And it means nothing to an Aussie in 2020 in Montgomery, Adelaide, Australia. Because it didn't even mean anything to Ruth from a neighboring country of the time. She had to explain the whole thing to her. Well, you notice Naomi never explained the proposal to Boaz. Boaz and Naomi in that culture understood that this was a form, a way of making your intentions for marriage known. It wasn't as obvious as, as, as deep sea diving and, 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 and a Packard, but nevertheless, it was there within her actions. And here's how it is. Look, this is what she, what she tells them to do go and uncover his feet and lie down. And we know that Boaz understands that action, 
that simple action, okay, of taking something that's covering the cause, a bit of sap, perhaps just covering his blanket whilst he lies down and sleeps through the night so he can work early in the morning, and exposing it and lying next to him was in that environment, in that culture, in that context, as clear as saying, Boaz, will you marry me? And here's what Naomi says, and here's what we know that he says, it is so, because Naomi says to her, look, when you do this, go over, uncover his feet, he will tell you what to do. Naomi knows that Boaz will understand it. When he sees what you do, he'll know exactly what you're saying, Ruth, and he'll give you his answer. He'll tell you. You'll know them. And so, here's, here's how he goes. So Boaz, he's lying there, Ruth goes up to him, she uncovers his feet, and she lies there. You're, the proposal may not be the uncovering of the feet. What do you think she's doing in the uncovering of the feet? Because she's going to uncover his feet, and she's going to lie down, most probably next to him, possibly under his feet. But this is what she's going to do. She's going to be lifting the blanket and lying there. Because the proposal's coming as the lying there, most probably. So the lifting of the feet is probably doing what? Exposing the feet is probably doing what? Waking him, yeah. Because he's going to know what's happening, doesn't he? So she lifts the blanket, exposes his feet as the cold draft of the wind probably would stir him. She's then to lie down next to him. And it's going to all easily be mis mis misunderstood, couldn't it? But Boaz understands exactly what it means. We'll see you next time. And in the lying down, Boaz will understand this woman, if you like, and we understand this, throwing herself at him. I mean, we, we, we understand that in one sense, don't we? This is a literal cultural way of someone throwing themselves at someone else. This is Ruth saying, lying next to him in the middle of the night. Okay, there's, there's nothing untoward going on here. But she is saying, if you like, I'm offering myself to you. Not in, the, not in this moment, it's symbolism, but this is a gesture. I'm offering myself to you. If you like to lie down with you each night. It's a way of saying, I'm offering myself, if you'll have me, to come and live with you and be your companion and your partner. It's lovely. It's, it's, it's quite beautiful. Because it, it's, it's humble. It's coming from someone who's a lesser. It's, it's, it's a way of asking God, will you take care of me? And so finally, Ruth, when Naomi asked us to do this, her response is, I will do whatever you say. And so Ruth does, and look, we'll look into what happens and the response and the details next time. The reason I keep these sermons going on week after week after week is to make sure you keep coming back week after week after <laughs> week. Okay, so come again. But I want to stop there, and I want to just draw something from it. See, you know, we haven't got very far. There's a lot going on. But here's, here's what we see, and here's what I want to bring out of you. My heading, if you remember, is a lovingly concerned mother-in-law. And, and that's, that's really what I, want to, what, I, what I want us to take away from this. Now, this is Naomi 
acting on behalf of this, this girl and her thoughts. And that's what Ruth is. She's a girl in a terrible plight of the day. She's got no future, no guarantee of anything. She's going to lose this mother-in-law before long. She's going to be in the world all alone with no one There's a real point here. Naomi acts on her behalf. Look, should I not try and find a home for you where you'll be well provided for? Anyone suggesting? We've already said that this is full of types and typology. Ruth is a type of the church. Boaz is a type of Christ. But the thing about script and type and typology, they're not always so strictly narrow to just individuals. Those types can be artifacts. The, 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 the Ark of the Covenant is a type. It's a type of what? Someone tell me quickly. The Ark of the Covenant is a type. It's a picture. It points to what? To Jesus. He is the Ark of God. We know he's the Ark of God. He told us in John 2 when he said, destroy this temple. Because the temple was replaced by the Ark, if you like. Or symbolize it. He said, destroy this temple. Which temple was he speaking about? His body. The Ark is a type. Boaz is a type. Ruth is a type. Okay? Even Naomi is a type, and she's acting as a type. What type is she acting as here? So what's Ruth, Naomi doing towards Ruth that makes her a type? What's she doing for this person who's a type of the church? Naomi is acting to support and benefit her. What's she acting as? As God's loving care towards us, as a type of Christ herself. She's acting in a way that takes notice of this young girl who has need, this young girl who represents the people of God. And so let me take it to John 3, 16, it's the most powerful, most famous verse in all of the Bible. For he speaks to one there who acts on behalf of others, of the church, of you and I, in our plight. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for her. I think that's what's going on here. The, the name is picturing for us, friends, that God care for the plight of those that are his, of you, of myself, of the church of Jesus. Here's our condition. You may be sitting there thinking, I don't have a plight. I'm pretty well okay. Hey, you know, I drove here under my own steam. I had a job. I'm not in a plight. I live in Australia. Albeit things aren't so great just now. But here's the reality. Beyond the periphery of how well we may or may not be, and when I say that I'm very mindful to everyone here, yeah, it is so well. But here's your real condition before God. You and I, without Jesus, if that's you today, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. you know You see, Christianity isn't just putting a plaster on you to make you look feel a bit better because you, you just, you know, uh, I had some blood taken yesterday and when she took the blood, she put a little plaster on You know, you know, here you go, little fella. <laughs> she was much bigger than me. Okay, there you go, little fella, you know. That, that, that'll sort you out. And she made my skin, like, oh, you must sit in my skin. You just put a plaster on there, okay? You don't just need a plaster. The Father says that without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. 
We need something catastrophic to take place to rescue us. You see, if you know Jesus, we're not just asking you to come and make a decision to follow him. Because you have no power to do that. Let me tell you straight. You have no power to make a decision to follow Jesus. Because if you're without Jesus, you're dead in sin. It means you're completely unable to do anything towards Jesus. You're completely unable to make your pres- your predicament better. A dead person, try it. Don't do more. I mean, dear Brunt works for one, okay? You, she has no power to command any of those dead people to do anything for themselves. What do they need? They need someone to do something for them. Friends, without Jesus, you need him to quicken you. Here's what the Bible says, here's the terminology. We're dead in our sins, and here's what he's done for us. And if you believe in Jesus, let me tell you, I know this sounds awful, I don't want to take your thunder, and I say the same things. Jesus came to me, I decided I wanted Jesus, and I'm following him now, and I'm a good boy. My mate doesn't follow Jesus, but I follow him. You know, I just have a cookie. You're not following Jesus because you're some great person, or because you just fancy him, or because you just had a wake up call one morning, or because you're anybody special. You're following Jesus like I'm following Jesus because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of this, because of this, because of what happened. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, did what to me when I was a corpse and dead in my sins? He did what? He came to me. I never went to him. Never. I tell you straight, friends. I never sought Jesus for my own strength. Never. I was more interested in fishing when I was a little boy. I was more interested in pursuing fighter jets when I was at school. He came for me. And he comes for you in your deadness. And when he comes to you, you know he's come to you because all of a sudden, my fancy for jets and for anything else I was interested in kind of went out the window. And all of a sudden, it was Jesus I was thinking about it. It was going to church I was thinking about. It was that I actually believe in him. And I wanted him. And I wanted to choose him. And I was going to follow him to the church every single week. And I gave him my ambition once for my plate because I wanted to tell people about Jesus. And none of that, none of that was in me. It came to me. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love for you, let me tell you, I don't say enough. He loves you. Do you get that? Because of his great love for you. Because of his rich in mercy. He made you alive. He saw your plight. He remedied your plight. He seated you. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. He seated you with him. Uh, look, they're just words. You need to understand them. Where does he sit? He's not sitting there. Where does God sit? On a throne. If He seats you with Him, where is He seating you? Where do you sit in a spiritual realm right now? I know this is your seat, but you have a virtual seat, Nikki. You're sitting where? Where are you sitting right now? Next to Him, thank you, Nancy. In His presence. 
but just in the You're sitting on the throne. You're sharing it. You share his power. One day he'll give you his power. Along with Jesus, you'll reign over the universe. Now, in some virtual, spiritual sense, you're seated with him. However small you feel, however little you feel, however insignificant your life may be, however young, old, or whatever else may be, you are sitting at the right hand of the majesty of God. You rule with Jesus. You are special. I don't think I've ever said that to you before. But you are special. You're more. You're seated at the right hand of power. Someone noticed your pride. Jesus noticed it. And he worked. God noticed it. And he worked to bring you out. He was sending Jesus for you and saving you. A lovingly concerned God has acted in your life. Hey, I finished. I finished. Let me let me leave you with this. He's concerned about your spiritual condition. Yes, he is. He has eternity in hand. You're sitting with him even there. Well, I've said this many times, and I want to say it again this morning. But it overflows. He's interested in you right now. Well, when I finish, I'm going to call you out. If you want prayer, I'm going to pray for you because his, his love and care for you overflows. He's interested in you right now, in what you're feeling, in what you're thinking, in what you're experiencing, in the pain that you've gone through, in the misunderstanding that you experience. And he wants to minister to you. As a package of that salvation. Salvation is a package. It includes eternity and it includes something for the journey. When we went out yesterday, we went out yesterday afternoon. You know what we did for our kids? We were going to give them a fish and chip dinner at the end of it. But that was like 6 o'clock in the evening. You know, like whatever it is, it's our annual, annual, weekly, semaphorian fish and chip endeavor. Okay? You're welcome to join us any, any Saturday, almost any Saturday, 6 p.m., you'll find us at Semaphore eating British carp. Swam all the way across the ocean from the UK. Seriously, it's true. Okay? Okay? Oh, yeah, we got just for that. But, but we didn't just leave them to one fish and chips at 6 o'clock. What do you think we did before that? Well, before that, we packed them a snack, a little stuff in the bag that they want to eat through the day. God has eternity for you. But He cares about you today. He cares. And we care. And we want to minister to you. If you want prayer, whether out of the front or privately, come. Don't leave today without receiving it. Without being ministered to. Without feeling and experiencing the love of God. And if we can't lay out, but you will pray for you. No, we pray for you. That's a channel and a medium of Jesus' love for you. Because his spirit, his Holy Spirit, is here right now. And he possesses, he is the power of God. Do you know that? The spirit of Jesus is the power of God. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that you have in your grips, in your presence this morning. To touch your heart and soul and body and mind. 
Come and get rid of that. Let me leave you with Psalm 23. Because he summed up everything that Jesus wants to do for you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And it's whatever I'm going to face this week, I will fear no evil. Not because I'm some super guy, no, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I will fear no evil because you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.